0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast every week. We take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor, with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Tooze, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economics of cigarettes. So, stick around for that. But our first data point is one trillion and that's not attached to any specific economic object per se but we did discuss apple's market valuation of three trillion dollars last week and that got us thinking that this unit of measure of trillion is increasingly common in our economic discourse and specifically in public policy But yeah, we've gotten used to talking about programs costing hundreds of billions of dollars. I think most people now are sort of inured to that or used to that. But this threshold of a trillion is somehow still significant. So we wanted to dive into this idea of the trillion dollar threshold in the economy and what exactly it means. So admittedly, this is a bit more conceptual than our usual segments, but we thought we'd give it a try. So stick with us, bear with us as we dive into that. So yeah, Adam, is it just basically time that we get used to thinking in terms of trillions of dollars when it comes to our public policy programs? And what primarily drives the size of the programs that we need, so to speak? Are there underlying natural needs? Spending on climate change would seem to be an example there. Or are our public needs defined by the economic system itself like the growing financial system and the economy just needs support by virtue of having grown etc
1: yeah it's great we, we're doing this because I, I have been on a bit of a crusade about this trillions issue now for for a while last couple of years because you know on the face of it you'd think this is such a sort of trivial way to think about the world right it's about scale pure scale and when we're just talking about the number it's just about the bigness of the number and you know, that surely must be in some level missing the, the point. And and of course it's true that you then also always have to ask, okay, what are you actually going to spend all this money on? And and you know, is financing really the issue? But the behind this reluctance, I think, to think about these really big numbers is a kind of refusal of reality fundamentally. And it's a kind of it's a refusal of the scale of. The world simply, like we live on a planet with eight billion people. They, you know, roughly speaking, global GDP is a hundred trillion dollars. Roughly speaking, US GDP is twenty trillion dollars plus. So, if we're actually serious about spending money on anything for everyone, if we're serious about actually doing anything on a global scale, if you know, we want to spend as much as. $120, $130 like a cell phone bill in the United States on everyone in the world, that's a trillion dollars right there. A billion times 120, right? I mean, it's it's that's the kind of ballpark we're in nowadays. And un- unless you're willing to go there, you are in a sense failing to grasp the scale of the problem. When you fail to do that, the really serious and drastic consequences follow. So if you spend an entire climate conference debating whether or not the rich countries can mobilize a hundred billion dollars for, you know, investment in low income and developing country sustainability, we're missing the point. I mean it's a Doctor Evil moment where, you know Teleported from the 1960s or whatever, he decides to hold someone to ransom and he puts his little finger to his mouth and he goes, A million dollars. You know, we all groan because you know you can get a one bedroom apartment in an expensive city for one million dollars. It's like if you're going to do something significant, do it for real. And that's kind of where we're at. So, yes, if you've got a hundred trillion dollar global economy and you're going to spend you're going to try and decarbonize it, you have to brace for over the period of decades, maybe $100 trillion in investment spending over the next 20 to 30 years. Decarbonizing by 2050 probably entails $100 trillion of spending. Broken down over 30 years, that's $3, $3 trillion per annum. That's about 3% of global GDP. That's you know a defense budget's worth of spending across the whole globe. If you're not doing that, if you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, you need to look in the mirror and say to yourself, we simply are not taking this problem seriously. This is my reaction also to the Inflation Reduction Act enthusiasm. $380 billion over 10 years is $38 billion a year. In an economy of twenty trillion dollars, folks, you're not actually serious. That's 0.1 percent. What? Give it, you know, be generous. 0.2 percent of American GDP. 0.2. So, two tenths of one percent. I mean, that's now. Of course, you then multiply it up. You imagine you're going to get various types of things going on. But really, are you doing enough? Right. That's the central question, and that's where the trillion-dollar moment is really the significant one. We have to somehow wrap our heads around this scale because. This is the simplest, really, in some senses, the simplest expression of the sheer awesome scale, complexity, and pace, dynamism, right, of the world that we're. In a hundred trillion dollars throws through the global economy every single year. It's another hundred trillion dollars next year. In fact, it'll be bigger because the global economy grows, right? It was another another moment like this for me was when Macron and Merkel were haggling over Eurozone finances as they were wont to do, you know. And Merkel put her little Dr. Evil finger to her mouth and says, Well, I think it should be a low double digit billion sums. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> Frau Merkel,, Angela Merkel is a very smart woman. Angela Merkel knows perfectly well that the t- the size of the eurozone economy is measured in tens of trillions. So when she comes along and says, Well, I think the overall you know common funding framework should be low double digit billions, she's basically saying with a kind of a wink, we're not serious about this. Hmm.
0: I do want it clarify, I suppose, when you make this appeal, who is your imagined audience? I mean, there is a kind of group of policymakers and elites who have responsibility for thinking on a global yeah. scale. Yeah. But then I, expo- I guess I wonder, is there a democratic problem there? Because most normal people in their normal lives are precisely not encountering this scale. In other words, there's a kind of educational function also, I suppose, that elites have to sort of encourage the public to think on this scale or introduce
1: this idea. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the elite thing, but that's why I'm glad that we're doing it on the show. Like, you know, because I think it's three-tiered. Yes. I mean, politicians have to be willing to take these kind of numbers, as the Germans would say, take them in your mouth, right? They need to be willing to express them. Communicators, people in the public sphere, they need to stop Panicking when these kind of numbers are raised. Journalists, in other words, folks like us doing this kind of podcast, we need to socialize this. And voters need to demand it. Voters need to say, I don't think you're serious if you don't come along. You know, think about when we had the Build Back Better discussion in the Democratic primaries ahead of the 2020 election. That was a moment, I think, where the Sanders campaign, by starting. At the realistic level, which is that for the United States, over a 30-year time horizon, or even over a 10-year time horizon, forget 30 years, over a 10-year time horizon, the US should be talking about an investment program in the order of $8 to $10 trillion. That's nothing more than realistic. That's because the world is radical and huge and this problem is urgent. And that's what it means. And that's essentially just the defense budget of the US, right? That's just the Pentagon's budget. That's all you're promising to talk about. And by saying that... That campaign changed the discourse for everyone, so that even very mainstream Democrats, including Pelosi and Schumer and and Biden, got on board with this and started pushing really big numbers as well for the stimulus package and then the original draft of Built Back Better, that of course got kneecapped by Manchin and so on. But that is what I'm talking about. We need to we need to unfetter this conversation. We need to shift the Overton window window.
0: So just on a basic level
1: can we actually afford trillions in spending or or debt well the affordability i think is a is you know has three elements the first is you know what is your income and if your actual income is is measured in tens of trillions as the united states gdp is then trillions of dollars mean fractions of that income which are not insurmountable right if you borrowed 5% of your income for some major investment you wouldn't panic So yes, if your income is in trillions of dollars, then your collective borrowing capacity and your spending capacity is in trillions of dollars too. All the more so, if you are not an individual, but a collectivity, and that's another element of the we, right? When we speak about this we, we mean society as a whole, because part of what limits the capacity of individuals and families to take on debt to finance investment is, of course, that they have finite lifetimes. You know, by the time you're in your 50s, you can no longer reasonably take out a 30-year mortgage. Whereas in your 20s and 30s, you can, right? So that's what makes it affordable to finance a home for some people at least at that stage. But societies have infinite time horizons, or at least they will if you know we make the necessary investments and save ourselves from doom. And so that again reduces the time element here and basically means you can roll this debt and you roll it into a future which will be more prosperous, so your income goes up over time, and so whatever borrow what we borrow now will be a smaller burden. And then the third element is the basic macroeconomics of what we mean by afford. I mean, if we mean by afford, can we find the greenbacks? Can we write ourselves the checks? Then the answer is absolutely we can. It's a a non-trivial matter of figuring out who in the end pays the bill. That's a redistributive job, political job within society. As Abba Lerner said, we owe this money to ourselves. And that in a sense means it is within the family, but that family then does actually need to agree who is going to pay, but that's a manageable problem and, and there's no there's no finite limit to how you can rearrange that. If what we mean by can we afford it is can we do all of the great things we want to do simultaneously at once, build all of the solar farms or whatever at once, the answer is of course not because the constraint there is not actually afford, it's not a question of finance, it's the question of real resources. And there it's then a question of priorities, of timing, of pace. I mean, if we have enough time, presumably there will always be enough resources over an infinite time horizon. Within a limited time horizon, then we have to prioritise. But that's a matter not of affording, but of allocating economic resources. But in all of those ways, yes, trillions of dollars in spending and borrowing, are they're just our reality, right? They're not even, this is the other thing. It's not even as though, you know, it's, it's an open secret that that is the level at which we already conduct business. Interesting. And so as
0: a matter, I mean, yeah, just to underscore this, theoretically, there's no reason that our problems could be so large that they would be
1: beyond our capacity to address them. I mean, there's oh, no, I mean, in one, well, one, no, 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 that, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't follow. I mean, I think there's every reason to think that many of our problems are absolutely stretching our capacity to tackle them. You know, imagine if the pandemic had been much worse, and we would fail to develop a, a vaccine. Where we would be? Well, but as a matter of financing, as a matter yes, of, as a matter of precisely. financing, the constraint is not financing, and the constraint that, is not financing. Yeah, precisely. Okay, because well, I ask because
0: one could imagine that one is contemplating things on this scale. One could feel insignificant. One could sort of feel a sense of hopelessness when one considers the scale of our problems. But you are saying, don't fret. You can. We can actually consider all of our problems and not have to worry that we won't be able to, at least financially, be able to address them.
1: Fred about the right things is what I'm saying. (laughs) And and don't allow your anxiety about the big money numbers to get in the way of urgently addressing the things we absolutely need to be fretting about. What would be catastrophic would be if we, for fretting over the money numbers, fail to address the real issues which determine how we, our children, our grandchildren, great grandchildren will live collectively that's exactly the thing we need to get over we need to get on with making a planet inhabitable for 8 billion people however big the money number turns out to be because that isn't the issue the issue is resources and technology and skills and politics that's where the real rub is so obviously in a
0: mathematical sense numbers are continuous you know there is no break between them we can count as high as we like into the infinite and there's no break there. But that doesn't seem to be the case politically. It seems programs grow stepwise over time in kind of stretches of punctuated equilibrium. I mean, why is there that difference if you were to venture a guess there?
1: I think it's a combination of three things. Um, The first is a kind of well-known psychological fact. We all encounter it in stores all the time, which is the so-called magic number or price point phenomenon. And in other words, we'd rather pay $9.99 than $10 for something, even if you know it's one cent difference. And we know this operates in politics on the large scale, because, for instance, in the Obama administration after the 2008 financial crisis, word was simply within the administration that nothing which had a trillion in it was going to be viable politically. So don't come with anything with a trillion in it. And one of the things which happened during COVID and in the first phase of the Biden administration was precisely... That folks around Schumer, Chuck Schumer, for instance, decided, yeah, you know what? We're going to do a stimulus that's over a trillion. In fact, we're going to go for 1.8, like make it really big. For-. So that was a politics of that price point. And that's a real thing. The other, I think the other thing goes back to the more real problems. In other words, there are problems which are lumpy. You know, I think about the Manhattan Project or something like that. That just simply is a big number. You know, when you said about building an atomic bomb for the first time, you don't know how much it's going to cost but you kind of figure it's gonna be pricey. And then all of a sudden everything resets because you suddenly realize to do this and to get this kind of bang for your buck, you know, the the bang you get, spectacular, so it's well worth spending the bucks, but you do really need to spend tens of billions to get yourself the Manhattan Project on a single weapon, on a single bomb, right? So that that lumpiness is a thing. And if you put those two things together, then I think you've got something like a kind of political project, policy program overton window. In other words, this is a discussable amount of money for that kind of a thing that you're doing. And that's where I think that's where we got to with central bank bailouts and and you know liquidity surges, quantitative easing, there was a progressive widening of the policy overton window where Ben Bernanke would buy, you know, a couple of hundred billion dollars worth of assets over a period of months. And in 2020, they were buying close to $100 billion a day. I mean, certainly over a week, they would buy half a trillion dollars worth of assets if they had to, right? And that's because they realized to get the job done, stabilizing the banking system, you go all in. That's, as it were, the Manhattan Project realization. And then then the price point shifts because you start realizing, okay, we can actually live with these incredible numbers. And so it's a combination, I think, of those Three effects the psychology, the underlying lumpiness of the problems, and then the shifting of the policy overton window around that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose just
0: to address the psychological questions here, I mean, yeah, and to some extent you're pointing to the kind of socialization as an impediment, you know, simply not being used to hearing these numbers. But I wonder if there's a kind of natural <laughs> foundation to some of these psychological fears. Just again, a sense of being overwhelmed by the scale here. That seems to me a kind of natural phenomenon. One says trillions of dollars. One can't simply maybe process that. As I was reading up for our discussion here, I came across an article about the work of Walt Whitman, who was a 19th century US poet. And yeah, it's remarkable how much he talked about large numbers in his work. And he had a kind of serenity in how he dealt with these large numbers in his works including leaves of grass he would just enumerate all the things in the world and the universe and he would you know cite things being in units of millions billions trillions even beyond that septillions octillions decillions and somehow all of it would put him at ease so somehow he had an aesthetic approach to these numbers it didn't make him feel insignificant it made him feel so part of some larger you know unit some some larger immortality that he was part of yeah rather than diminishing him you know even just to read a bit here he says i do not think 70 years is the time of a man or woman nor that 70 millions of years is the time of a man or woman nor that years will ever stop the existence of me or anyone else is it wonderful that i should be immortal as everyone is immortal, I know it is wonderful. So maybe that's infantilizing uh, itself, but um, he, oh, no, uh, I would not
1: <laughs> I, I love. I'm going to advocate. I'm going to take a Whitmanian approach to public debt in future. I yeah, why I not? I really. <laughs> <laughs> this is the. This is a fantastic idea. But yeah, democratic vistas is a yes. political that, program. That precisely. No, that is literally. Because this is constraining of democracy, right? So mm. This kind of discourse of limits is quite self-consciously as well. It's fear of freedom. It's fear of what is empowered by that, by that notion. What a great segue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we do have to end up here
0: anyway. Uh, so we'll take a break and be back to talk about cigarettes. Our next data point is 35% that is the share of sales of tobacco company Philip Morris that are now derived from smoke-free products, including the e-cigarettes that have become increasingly popular in recent years as an alternative to classic cigarettes. For Philip Morris International, it's not exactly cold turkey. The transformation here is away from those traditional cigarettes there are likely to be less traditional smokers in years to come and now e-cigarettes are taking over a share of the market. Philip
1: Morris International says many countries could end sales of combustible cigarettes within 10 to 15 years joining
0: me now. That 35% is the basis of Philip Morris's claims to investors and shareholders that it should be considered an ESG company company that adheres to environmental, social and governance standards. That's a pretty remarkable claim. So we thought we'd dig into not only that, but also the general economics of cigarettes. So yeah, let's just start with the ESG claim. I mean, what exactly is Philip Morris's case here for being an ESG
1: company? Yeah, it's really vertiginous. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think to get your head into the mindset of the people making this claim, you have to start from the proposition that there's 1.3 billion people out there who are addicted to this dangerous habit that's going to kill at least half of them. And so then the question is, what do we do about it? And you don't ask questions about how you ended up in that situation or who's responsible for it. But then the question is, how do you, how do we address this crisis? And realistically speaking, 1.3 billion people are not going to go cold turkey and quit. So the way forward is to reduce the harm being done. And so the way forward is to sell them various types of vaping. So whether it's a vape, which is a fluid with nicotine in it that you heat, or whether it's Philip Morris's product, which is called IQOS, I gather, which is more like a stick form of nicotine, they believe is healthier than cigarettes. In fact, that's hotly contested uh, in the medical literature, because when you heat Tobacco, you just generate these toxins, and that's kind of the source of the main problem. In any case, Philip Morris's vertiginous claim is that because they are going to offer an increasingly displaced cigarette by these vape sticks, that that makes them a company which is going to pioneer a smoke-free world. It's unbelievable. They actually have this phrase, unsmoke the world. And they borrowed this from the perhaps no less vertiginous strategy of BP, the oil major, which in the late 1990s, early 2000s, rebranded itself as beyond petroleum. And so that seems to be the, the basis of this improbable claim. So if we were to look at smoking from an average smoker's perspective, how much exactly does an average smoker spend on their smoking habit? It's a gigantic amount, and it depends crucially not on the cost of producing the cigarettes, which are trivial. It costs 25, 30 cents to produce a pack of cigarettes, unbelievably. They're one of the original mass-produced, mass-consumed products in the world, actually. But nowadays, uh, the vast majority of the price of cigarettes everywhere in the world is made up of tax. And so that varies by locality within the United States. It can vary by a factor of two, almost three, from you know low-cost low tax states like Virginia to New York state. Um, but if you add up a pack a day over the likely life expectancy of an American smoker even in a low cost state you come to $100,000 plus. If you're in a high cost state you're talking almost a quarter of a million dollars. If you add in what, you know, the the additional health premiums that somebody like that is spending because to get health insurance if a smoker is much more expensive you add another $20 to $30,000. And then the real money adds up if you imagine that rather than spending the money on cancer sticks, the smoker spent the money on a savings account, simply put the money in a savings account invested in their pension, their kids' education, their future, an apartment, right? You're talking really huge amounts of money. So even at a modest interest rate of 4%, the lifetime smoking habit of a New Yorker would probably add up to three quarters of a million dollars in terms of foregone accumulated savings, massive amounts, just in purely economic terms, not accounting for the lethality of the smoking habit.
0: Yeah, that truly is a life changing amount in an individual's life. But if we were now to look at the sort of spending on a social level, I mean, how much societal health spending is tobacco use responsible for?
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating to do these kind of numbers. I mean, sorry, I say that in a rather kind of academic way. I mean, it's horrifying, but but also how do you do the math on this? I mean, one way of estimating it is to go to the healthcare costs, so the additional costs due to smoking-related disease. Another one is to do with lost productivity due to illness. And a third is the lost productivity from premature mortality so if you add up all of those together you end up with truly staggering numbers so the who the world health organization has done estimates which put the cost to world society easily in the trillion dollar perhaps even close to two trillion dollars mark the healthcare expenditure alone is thought to run to you know, at least half a trillion dollars. So the the, the the most widely circulated estimates date back 10 years to 2012. So we should probably update those. But at the time they estimated it was 5.7% of global health expenditure. So one in $20, which is quite staggering if you consider the full range of things that have to be covered. If you add in the, the lost productivity and, and excess mortality, this is where you start pushing towards the $2 trillion mark which puts you in the ballpark of 2% of global GDP. So, you know, really huge amounts of money. For the United States alone, and and because the US is a rich country, and so therefore lost productivity and lost lives are valued more highly, according to the rather sort of cynical, cold-blooded logic of this kind of calculus, you end up with a figure for 2018 of at least $600 billion a year in, in lost Income, half of that is, well, uh, 240 billion of that rather is healthcare spending. 185 billion is smoking related illness and 180 billion is premature death. So, against a US GDP of $20 trillion, we're talking about 3% of US GDP. That's a very significant slice of discretionary expenditure in the federal government budget. That's the kind of money that would get us to the energy transition. You know if America's government was spending three percent of GDP per year on the energy transition, we'd really be going gangbusters on renewable energy. So we're talking absolutely massive costs. Uh, by one estimate I saw, the societal cost of a single pack of cigarettes comes out at about thirty five dollars. So taxing them at ten, fifteen dollars is actually not fully capturing the cost here. And certainly the revenue from cigarette taxation doesn't come close to covering the overall impact. It's a profoundly antisocial industry built up over the last century and a half and massively reinforced, even in its current form, you know, in following the major lawsuits um, as a real drain on the, literally a cancer on the the body of society.
0: So what exactly is the most effective public measure for reducing tobacco use? Is it simply taxes on tobacco? uh, You you just mentioned that as a kind of anti-tobacco measure. Or are there other forms of public
1: spending that have proven effective here? The literature seems to be very unambiguous and in fact quite determined to make the point that taxation is the way to go here. So a 10% increase in price appears to reduce cigarette consumption by between 3 and 5%. And it's particularly effective with young smokers. So they're two to three times more likely to respond to increases in prices than adults. And lower income populations who are multiply disadvantaged, uh, obviously, in so many ways, are also more likely to smoke fewer cigarettes if the price goes up. So we're really talking about millions of lives that can be saved by simply upping the price uh, of this um, you know, antisocial product. Um, millions of lives. So the WHO estimates that no effective global tobacco control measures save between five and seven million lives a year. Simultaneously, of course, there is also as a result of this taxation, a, a very active, illicit underground global network of cigarette smuggling, either of legitimate um, original manufactured cigarettes, or of much worse counterfeits, which have produced a much lower quality standards and are even more dangerous than the original branded cigarettes that they replace. And even in advanced economy markets like the UK, they're estimated to account for 20% of cigarette consumption, particularly attractive to young people who like to buy cigarettes through illicit channels. And in developing market economies, it's even larger in places like Malaysia, the uh, smuggled share goes up over 70%. So there we're talking about a largely uh, unregulated trade in a very dangerous product
0: yeah that that leads me to the last question i wanted to ask here which is about cigarette use elsewhere in the world i mean if traditional cigarette smoking is on the decline in the west again that's philip morris itself is stating that as a goal of its business but how does it look in an international context do 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 people in developing countries still spend on cigarettes and when 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 they get a certain amount of discretionary income is 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 smoking still one of the things uh, that th- that they tend to spend on
1: yeah this is absolutely part of the cynicism of the Philip Morris effort to brand itself as a you know an ESG asset because whilst they are pushing the non-smoke generating versions of cigarettes which they you know suppose are healthier to advance the economy markets they are pushing regular conventional cigarettes very hard in markets like Egypt, Thailand and Turkey, which are amongst Philip Morris's most rapidly growing markets worldwide. And that, you know, it's, it's an open secret and visible in their annual reports that they are pursuing this sort of twin track strategy. Ar- around the world of the 1.3 billion um, men and women that use tobacco regularly, 80% are in lower middle income countries. And um, there are huge variations, however, very interestingly, so so Africa as a whole, Sub-Saharan Africa, notably, has the lowest rates of cigarette use in the world and very low rates amongst women. By contrast, in Asia, for men, uh, East Asia, notably in China, for instance, 50% of men smoke and the rate is lower in the Middle East, but there's a huge gap there between men and women. and. Uh, across much of the emerging market and low-income world, there's still disinhibited advertising of the classic type that you and I were exposed to, Cam, as kids, you know, the Marlboro Man advert selling cigarettes as cool that that prefaced every single movie I went to in Germany as a kid. Vividly remember the scenes of it. It's the first place I first saw the Grand Canyon was in a Marlboro advert. And it was a very, you know, it was a very beautiful film. But in Indonesia, they recently ran a campaign, you know, be strong, be daring, be brave, be Marlboro. So that kind of advertising is still going on. And the, the, awesome implication of this is that if you think of cigarette smoking as a global pandemic and you think of the first wave of consumers to be sucked into this in the late 19th and early 20th century being our grandparents and great-grandparents who were heavy smokers and began to die in large numbers in the 50s and 60s of cancer which is what then produced the medical research and the evidence and the campaign against smoking as a cancer cause the majority of the deaths which are coming our way in the 21st century, and we expect a billion people ultimately to die of cigarette smoking, the majority of those are going to be in the low income and emerging market world. And, and that will play out inexorably, um, more or less regardless of what we do now with regards to you know, reduction those deaths are feeding through the bodies of, of hundreds of millions of people around the world in the form of cancer and, and will, will overwhelm or at least impose huge pressure on the healthcare systems of middle-income and low-income countries in decades to come.
0: Hmm. Do, just for my own edification, do these are, are the cigarette companies primarily from the West or do they have sort of local cigarette companies as well that are major players here? Do you happen to know that?
1: It's a Quite concentrated industry, so the big global players tend to be the the original Western players. Mm. Yeah, I could imagine. I could I ask this because
0: I could imagine some kind of anti Western kind of uprising. You know, uh, you know, against this drug being sort of pushed on the developing world from the West. You could uh, I don't I don't know if at some point there'll uh, uh, be some kind of self consciousness about. About the kind of trap almost that uh, the West seems to be imposing on the rest of the world with these cigarettes. But again, I guess it's uh, plenty of people enjoy smoking them despite all the bad effects. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Two's listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Toos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.